Seltzer Kings Podcasts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, I assure you, Gavin, that when people think of the word colonizer, yours is the face that comes to mind. Yes. The following podcast contains... Tobacco, swear words, and... (laughs) Yes, alcohol. Explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you, uh... You gave those guys that Grammy without actually hearing them sing. What the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 416. The Millie Vanilli were neither a Millie nor a Vanilli. Talk amongst yourselves. Edition of the show where we talk about the scandal that officially ended the 1980s and who the really bad guys were. Hint it, it wasn't the singers. Stay tuned. What the hell are you thinking podcast is brought to you by Fast Eddie's Talent Management. You bring the look, we supply the talent. Are you dreaming of being an A-list pop star to live the life of Taylor, Beyonce, or Rihanna, but lack the one thing to make it in the music business, the ability to sing? Or do you suffer from what we in the music business call the Susan Boyle situation, great voice, but lack of that certain look? Well, your star search is over, because here at Fast Eddie's, we have the solution to your problem. We match the behind-the-scenes talent with the made-for-TV face, split the money three ways, and everybody wins. Especially Fast Eddie. We can teach you the face to lip-sync perfectly with the voice, and together, we will make you both a star. One of you, admittedly, will be slightly more of a star than the other, but hey, all the money is still green. So if you're ready to overcome the biggest obstacle in the music biz, meet your talent match at Fast Eddie's Talent Management. It's our lucky night as Patty joins us live. Oh, you're lucky. Well, can they do it? Will their fans forgive them? Millie Vanilli is dead, but Rob and Fab want to revive their music career. This time, they want to sing. You'll meet them next. Dr. Rob and Fab at the Vogue tonight. Well, maybe they wouldn't have been so disgraced if they hadn't been so successful. They lived a lie. And when the truth was out, they lived in shame. Now they want to talk. Now they want to sing. Really. And the best new artist is... Millie Vanilli. Three years ago, they were on top of the music business. Millie Vanilli, Rob Pilatus, and Fab Morvan were honored by their peers as the best. And it all came crashing down a few months later when rumors were confirmed they did not sing on their album. It was over. It was the first time a Grammy had been taken back. A lot of people might find it shocking that I can, or rather, used to be able to actually sing. Not well. I have, or or rather had, a nice baritone that in my youth could reach into the tenor range. I'm not saying I was ever professional quality. No, and no one has ever thought that. But in my early days, I could, as they say, carry a tune in a bucket. Now, these days, the, uh... What were the drinking and the smoking? I can barely muddle out a lower baritone, but even that is pretty much spent. But still... It was always a thrill back in the days to climb up on the karaoke stage and really belt one out while watching the crowd react from going, 
Who's the fuck is this fat drunk guy to, uh... He doesn't suck, huh? It wasn't exactly my teenage dream of being David Lee Roth, but it was all right. And also, I still have my original hair, something Diamond Dave does not. Now, Diamond Dave may be rich as fuck, but I promise you, he would trade it all for his young voice, his young body, and most of all, his young hair. These are the facts of the case, and they are undisputed. Now, like I said, my voice was good, but if you want to make a good voice great or even good enough, it takes training. And in a family like mine, there were two ways that one could get that kind of training. First of all, I could have gone the theater kid route, which was widely suspected to take innocent young straight boys and turn them suddenly, suddenly turning gay, which is not how that works, but it is what people thought at the time. Not saying my parents necessarily thought that I was going to be turned gay if I went the theater route. I'm just saying with all the other things they were worried about, that thought had probably crossed their mind a couple of times. And as to my ever being gay, all I can say is, if only. The other route, one more comfortable to people like my parents, was of course singing in the church choir. However, as we now know, being in the church, qu church choir was a fast track to being exposed to your friendly neighborhood. People back in the 80s were always worried about the theater teacher, who most of the time was gay, but would never touch a child because he was a decent human being, when they should have been worried about the youth pastor, Kyle, who loved to give private tutoring sessions to all the aspiring young sopranos in the rectory on a Saturday afternoon. Another of those paths were in my card, so I sang karaoke at bars, which I guess all things considered turned out the best. But you know, there was one option that I never explored and could have. I could have learned how to lip sync my way to fame and fortune. Which brings us to this week's topic. When in July of 1989, the Grammy Award-winning duo Millie Vanilli were performing live on stage for their MTV TV summer concert at Lake Compounds in Bristol, Connecticut, when uh, this happened. I wanted to die. Now, in our cynical age, we all know that live performers rarely, if ever, actually sing live. They're fucking lip-syncing. And this is for one simple reason, is most modern musicians... They suck. But in those, in those innocent days, when the last vestige of actual musical talent was still making money in music, we weren't prepared for this kind of revelation, nor were we prepared for the revelation that came after. So let us tell the full story of Millie Vanilli. In the beginning, there was Frank. Fuck you, Frank. Frank Farian, born in Kern, Germany in July of 1941. You enjoy yourself with the Hitler Youth? I mean, he was probably a little young at five years old to be in the Hitler Youth, but things did get a little grim in Germany right before the end. Now, young Frank grew up in post-World War II West Germany, and he fell in love with American rock and or roll. And he tried to have his own musical career. According to Wikipedia, quote, in April of 1967, he released a cover of Otis Redding's Mr. Pitiful under the name Frankie Farian. 
1976, Farian's German language cover of Dickie Lee's Rocky stayed at number one for four weeks and received gold certification. His 1973 sing single, Was a German language cover of Lindsay DePaul and Ron Roker's song, When You Gotta Go, was listed as one of the top 100 all-time Schlagerleiter by German magazine Popkultur, unquote. But Frank's true skill was in record producing, meaning what he lacked in musical talent he made up for in access to money. He excelled at putting people together in what he what, what we would come to call supergroups, but seeing as this was West Germany in the 70s, the definition of super might be a little broad. More from Wikipedia, quote, He recruited a lineup which included vocalists Liz Mitchell and Marsha Barrett, along with a male Bobby Farrell and female dancer Maisie Williams and his own additional vocals under the name of Boney M. He achieved his biggest success in Europe as well as across the whole world with well-known songs like Daddy Cool, Rivers of Babylon, Rasputin, and a remake of Mary's Boy Child. Farian also st started the supergroup Far Corporation, named after the first syllable of his last name, which featured Steve Luthiker, David Pock, Bobby Kimball, Simon Phillips, all from Toto fame, and Robin McCauley. Far Corporation were the first act to chart with a cover version of Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. Their cover was a top 10 hit in the UK, reaching number 8 in October of 1985. They're playing all the hits! He did produce a Meatloaf album. No, no, it, it was the other one. And I would do anything for love. Oh, I would do anything for love. No, not that one either. It was uh, Meatloaf's 1986 album when Meat was trying to do something different, I guess. It, uh, it didn't do as well as Mr. Loaf's earlier efforts or as well as his later efforts, uh, peaking at number 21 on the, uh, on the album charts. This is Casey Kasem. Now on with the countdown. No, no, it, it never broke into the Hot 100 here in the States. It peaked at number 21 on the Swiss album charts. Which is nice. <laughs> After getting medium play in several Central European markets, Frank decided it was time to shake things up a bit. And while watching American pop music on MTV, he had an idea. Fraud? Well, Frank wouldn't call it fraud. Since he was German, he probably would have said something a little more like... Betrug. Which in German probably means something like a minor deception that no one will ever notice. I don't... What do I know? I got a D- minus in German. Having access to a stable of highly competent musicians, I thought, why not mix and match a little? You mean lie? No, no, no. See, what Frank would do is find some fresh young faces that would appeal to the American musical tastes, you know. Francis. Because all the rage here in the United States was this newfangled music called hip and or hop. So Frank thought to himself, he might make a couple of million with some attractive young black men, which were just starting to become available in West Germany at the time. He would take these attractive young black men, match them with the musicians that he had at his disposal, and just let the dumbass Americans assume whatever they wanted. Next, we meet Rob Pilatus, born in Munich in 1965 to a black American soldier and a German dancer. And he was promptly put up for adoption by his German mother because fucking a black guy was all fun and games, 
but raising a child that wasn't of pure Aryan blood was another. Yeah, it seems kind of mean. I could tell you stories about this kind of thing from the time, because they happen all the time, but if I told them to you, it would depress you, and this is supposed to be a comedy podcast, so I just reference them and depend on you to depress yourself on your own time. Rob was eventually adopted by a German couple in Munich, where he was accepted and embraced as part of the multicultural tapestry that was post-war West Germany. Oh, that is sweet. <laughs> you thought I was being serious? I mean, Germany today is barely holding it together, and even the white Germans aren't too keen on the other white Germans because they were born in East Germany. Being cool with black people? Forget about it. So, despite being called, or rather perhaps because he was called, Kunta Kinte, by his Aryan classmates, Rob was determined to be someone. From Wikipedia, quote, after leaving his adoptive home as a teen, Pilatus worked as a model and breakdancer and appeared as a backing singer with the group Wind at the 1987 Eurovision Song Contest in Brussels. The band finished in second place, unquote. And Rob met Fab Morvan in the Munich dance scene in 1988. Fabrice Maxime Sylvain Morvan, born in Paris in May 1966 to parents from Guadalupe, had a different though no less warm and accepting lifestyle in France. I mean, France had long had Africans living in the country because of... Uh, colonization. Uh, but uh, France didn't like it very much. I mean, all of Europe was in on that colonization shit, but France had colonies in Africa, which was slightly more accepting. And I do mean slightly, because black folks living in France were not fucking welcome there. Bob, as he went by, was enmeshed in the Euro music scene. And he was also a dancer and model. He moved to Germany, where he was trying to make it in the burgeoning Europop music scene. What is Europop? I hear you ask my poor, uninformed pod friends. Europop was a synth-heavy dance music that was exploding out of the club scene in Western Europe. How to describe Europop? Well, it began with a little band called ABBA. If you change your mind, take a chance, on the first thing in line, honey, I'm still free, take a chance on me. But quickly evolved into a highly produced and intensely danceable genre that at the tail end of the 80s and early 90s before grunge brought us all down was gold on the pop charts. Ace of Bass was joined by Roxette, largely thanks to their inclusion on the Pretty Woman soundtrack. And such bands would go on to be a huge influence on American lacks in the late 90s and early 2000s, like a, a little group that you've probably never heard of. Yeah. Together, Rob and Fob began putting together an idea for a musical act. A musical act that would highlight their musical taste and their heritage. Again, from Wikipedia, quote, Something clicked between us, Pilatus said. Maybe it's because we're both black people who grew up in foreign cities that don't have too many blacks. We lived in a project. We had no money. We wanted to be stars. Unquote. Enter Frank Farian. Fuck off, Frank. Now, Frank had heard about the lads through his connection in the Munich club music scene. Imagine fat-ass Frank draped in a booth spilling Deutschmarks and cocaine in equal amounts to attract the beautiful people. Can you prove any of this? It was the 80s. Can Frank prove that it wasn't like that? He was a music producer, for fuck's sakes. Of course he had money and coke. Anyway, 
Frank invited Rob and Fob to his Frankfurt studio, dangling a recording contract in front of the two young men who were desperately wanting to break into the music business and having zero success because of the oldest story in the book. Racism. Well, that, and also, they weren't that great musically. But, 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 but we'll get to that. And Frank did what music producers do best. Be the lie to your face forever. From Mental Floss, quote, we walked into a trap, not knowing it was a trap, Fob told Vlad TV in, in his version of events. He and Rob signed the contract without realizing they were being hired purely to lip sync. They wanted to sing. And the first time Farian played them, Girl, You Know It's True, a song that would become their international breakthrough, he presented the track as an instrumental. Little did they know, Farian had already recorded vocals with professional singers. By the time they learned the truth, Fob said, they had already spent Farian's advance money on the new clothes and their trademark hair extensions. They were suddenly in debt to Farian, and they couldn't walk away from the project until they paid him back. Once the group took off and the girls, the drugs, and the money came into the picture, it became even harder for Robin Fob to break away, unquote. This wasn't even the first time that Farian had done something like this. In 1976, Frank created the funk disco band Boney M, who were all coincidentally Afro-Caribbean. This isn't coincidence. And dubbed other vocalists singing their lyrics. One of the vocalists was Frank himself. Though, he basically used the 1970s equivalent of autotune to make himself sound better. When it was later discovered that Farian had used other singers, it was shrugged off as the practice was common in disco groups, which is probably why Frank thought he could get away with it again in the late 1980s. Spoiler alert, he did. Farian told the LA Times in 1990, quote, Farian was selling millions of records and became one of the most valued producers, making records for Meatloaf and Stevie Wonder. But Farian still hungered for his U.S. breakthrough. He found some new singers, Brad Howell and John Davis, former American soldiers with a good sense of the new thing, rap. He worked with new mixes for some numbers he'd written with Boney M days. However, Howell was 45 by his own account, though Farian insisted he's 38. Why would the guy say he was old? Never mind. And wasn't too thrilled about the idea of going on tour. Farian wanted a catchy look to go with the bouncy sounds. With the Billy Vanilli songs already recorded, Robin Fobb walked into the studios one day seeking work. Again, this is Farian's version of the events. They looked great. They sang terribly. They were perfect. I just said, okay, let's do it, Farian remembers. What's the difference? It's some extra money for me. Even here in-house, the musicians didn't know. I knew it could get them all in trouble, unquote. Farian named his new creation Millie Vanilli, with Millie taken from the nickname of his then-girlfriend Ingrid Seagrith. I don't see the Millie in that, but again, not German. And Vanilli added to sound like the British band Scritty Politti. Quoting now from a delightfully titled article called Mime and Punishment. Honestly, I wish I could name this show that. Contractsploitation.com. Quote, so, with their image sorted, they reported to the studios, assuming they would be recording vocals. They were told by Farian that the vocals had been recorded. All he needed them to do was lip-sync the words in a music video and do some promotional shows. They were horrified and flatly refused. They wanted to sing, not just dance around and mime. Frank Farian told them that they had signed an agreement, and that committed them to the project for three albums. They were contractually obligated to do all to do the promotional work associated with those albums. He said if they wanted out of the deal, all they had to do was repay the advance that they'd been given and they'd be released released from their commitments. 
The truth is the contract was voidable, as it could be argued that Farian had misrepresented the contents of the agreement by leading him to believe they would be singing on the tracks, and it wasn't clear about his intentions until after they signed. Any half-decent lawyer could get that contract voided. They didn't have a lawyer, or anyone advised them at all. Unable to pay back the money as they had spent it all, Rob and Fob agreed to do the promotional work for Girl You Know It's True, and then once they'd paid off what they were advanced, they would go their own way. Well... That was the plan, anyway, unquote. By April of 88, the final mix of Girl You Know It's True was done and the song was released in German dance clubs and it was instantly popular. Millie Vanilli's debut album, All or Nothing, was out by November, where it too climbed the European charts. This led to an American contract with Arista Records who released the album as Girl You Know It's True. Based largely on the strength of the videos, which featured Robin Fobb looking sexy as fucking hell, it rapidly climbed the charts. Quoting again from Mental Floss, quote, Millie Vanilli scored five top five hits in the Billboard Hot 100 that included three number one singles. Baby, Don't Forget My Number, Girl, I'm Gonna Miss You, and Blame It on the Rain. All four singles were on the album Girl, You Know It's True, which went six times platinum in America and sold millions more copies worldwide, unquote. None of those songs were sung by Rob and or Fob. In January 1990, the album Girl You Know It's True was certified six times platinum by the RIAA after spending seven weeks atop of the Billboard 200. It spent 41 weeks in the top 10 of the Billboard Top 200 and 78 weeks on the charts overall. The pair won the Grammy for Best New Artist and three American Music Awards. Going back to Traxploitation, quote, it doesn't matter where you are from in the world or what style of music you do. The absolute pinnacle for any recording artist is a number one record in the USA. To reach that stage in a little over a year without touring the country and with only your second single was phenomenal. So naturally, all eyes were on Millie Vanilli now. They had done many shows already over the last year or so and would still go on to do a full European and US tour but little did they know their next performance would be the one they would be remembered for. On the 21st of July, 1989, Millie Vanilli took the stage for a performance on, on MTV at the Lake Compound Theme Park in Bristol, Connecticut. Partway through the performance, the device responsible for playback jammed and kept repeating, Girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, girl, you know it's, over and over. Pilatus recalled the incident in an interview saying, when my voice got stuck in the computer, it just kept repeating and repeating. I panicked. I didn't know what to do. I just ran off stage. MTV host downtown Julie Brown ran after him and convinced him to finish the performance with a bit of pushing and shoving, screaming, and a couple of F-words, I think, as well. I got them back out there, Brown explained, unquote. Thing is, the crowd, they didn't even fucking notice. They were having a blast, and honestly, even in the 1980s, it kind of didn't really surprise anyone that a live show might be dubbed. MTV certainly wasn't going to make an issue out of it because that would lead to some hard questions about pretty much every other live performance that aired on MTV. And the music journalist that had already had a low opinion of Millie Vanilli, Rolling Stone said the group and the album was the worst act and worst album of the year 1989. So they weren't going to really pay too much attention and basically it would have been a couple of articles and all Rob and Fob had to do was just... Just be cool. What did happen was Rob and Fob demanded Frank Ferry and let them sing on the follow-up album to which Frank replied... 
No, I am not going to do that. And promptly called the press conference where he spilled the whole plan, claiming that Rob and Fob were terrible singers. Quote, I've never heard such a bad singer, he says. They wanted to sing. They wanted to write songs. It never happened. Instead, they went to the discos until 4 a.m., slept all day. All they ever really did was party. Someone who lives like that can never make good music, unquote. Nice coded language for saying that black people are lazy. They're Frank. We heard you. So Frank had no choice but to use other singers, which he already surprisingly had pre-recorded. And besides, even if, even if this had happened, and it did, it was all on the very up and up and legit. Everyone what was knew what was going on. Everyone agreed to everything, including the record label, to which the record label replied, We knew nothing. This caused Rob and Fob to call their own press conference, which included a voice coach who told the assembled reporters that the two actually could sing. The Grammys took back their Best New Artist Award and the pair became a laughing stock. In Living Color, spoof the pair. Millie Vanilli commercial, take one. Hello, we are Millie Vanilli. You know, a lot of people don't understand the enormous success of Millie Vanilli. And neither do we. <laughs> but we are here today to tell you that you too can be Millie Vanilli with lots of positive energy and our new do-it-yourself at home, Millie Vanilli Kid. And making the Letterman top 10 lists. Uh, <clears throat> here we go, the category tonight, top 10, top 10 new jobs for Millie Vanilli. Number 10, open the law firm of Jacoby Myers, Millie, and Vanilli. Number 9, camp counselors in the Father Flanagan's Pretty Boys Town. Number 8, Jamaican pickpockets in an American Express commercial. Not a good scene, Dave. 7, tried to sell Ben and Jerry's on the idea of for Millie Vanilli. 6, cartoon pals to Chili Willie. Number 5, professional objects of scorn and ridicule for years to come. Sadly prescient, and sadly, that's how they felt. Four, fact checkers for at 2020 for the Buckwheat Division. I don't know what that reference was, and I was alive then. Number three, even newer kids on the block. Number two, extremely groovy fry cooks. And the number one new job for Millie Vanilli. Who cares, so long as we don't hear from them ever again. Frank Varian went back to Germany where he released the real Millie Vanilli featuring the actual singers of the actual songs, but that album flopped and flopped badly. The only album to flop worse than the real Millie Vanilli was Rob's and Fob's self-titled album. I mean, they even appeared on the Arsenio Hall show, which is a major thing at the time, singing their debut single, We Can Get It On. was fine it wasn't girl you know it's true but it was it was fine it was generic hip-hop pop of the late of the late 80s and early 90s and sadly for the two of them all the arsenio whoops in the world weren't gonna shake the stigma of being milli vanilli their album sold 2,000 copies <laughs> Both Rob and Fob spiraled into drug abuse and spent most of the early 90s at the bottom. 
1997, VH1 featured them on Behind the Music, an iconic episode that you should watch. And this led to an attempted renaissance in which fucking Frank Farian, always on the scope for fresh ways to cash in on these poor dudes, agreed to produce a new album where Robin Fobb actually did sing. It was actually recorded, and it was titled Back and in Attack. It was never released. This is because Rob was arrested for assault and robberies, did six months in jail and rehab in California, and died of an overdose in 1988 at the age of 33 on the eve of their comeback tour. His death was ruled accidental, but we know that is now what we call a death uh, death of despair because (laughs) Rob was in a fucking dark place. Fob, too, went through his trouble with drugs, but cleaned up after the death of Rob. He spent years as a session musician in L.A., an on-air and a club DJ. Did several film projects spanning from KFC commercials to documentaries about his life. He released several albums over the year to moderate success and still spends time on the speaking circuit as a motivational speaker. Fob has kind of earned a redemption out of all of this, which just reinforces the tragedy of Rob's death. Frank Farian, alive and well and in Florida at the age of 82. He never left the music industry, though he never struck gold again like he did with Millie Vanilli. But you know what? That's okay because he got stinking rich off the fraud and never paid any kind of price for ruining the lives of more Van and Pilatus, which just reinforces that capitalism is very good to the very worst people in the fucking world. You know what capitalism is? Get fucked. Yeah. Yeah, but if you're white and already rich, you get fucked in the good ways, like by models and actresses and have massive bank accounts. But if you're not white and rich, well, you get the kind of fuck that leaves you dead in a hotel room from an overdose. That is the music industry and, hey, capitalism in a nutshell. That is it for the show this week. We alluded to this topic all the way back in episode 256, but I wanted to come back and do a full show on it. It's one of those stories that was funny when it happened because we didn't know what had actually happened. And then when we found out the truth, yeah, it wasn't funny anymore. Odd on how many of our show topics tend to turn out like that. Speaking of unpleasant turns, rate and review us so others can find us. Take a listen and find that their day has taken an unpleasant turn of its own. If you want us to kick us a buck for Gavin and my hair extensions, hit us up on patreon.com slash what the hell podcast. Now. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, you will have no choice but to call a press conference and reveal that Danny Tamarelli has been secretly voicing my voice for the podcast all along. And so for me, Dave, I'm in love with you, girl, because you're on my mind. You're the one I think about almost every time. Let's so, producer, to make you all mine. All mine is my desire, because you contain a quality that I admire. Gavin and all the fictional lip syncers on the show. We want to say, girl, you know it's true. Ooh, ooh, ooh. We love you, and we'll see you all next week. What the hell were you thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings podcast network. 
You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Wait, wait, you choose Millie over Vanilli? Seltzer Kings Podcasts.